Hello and welcome to another episode of the Alright Pal Games Podcast. Uh, it's me, Ben, and I am joined by the Aztec Warrior, Dave. How you getting on, Dave? Yeah. Ready to kick some ass. Took some names. Uh, yeah, we're just coming hot off the back of watching a little bit of wrestling ourselves. Uh, maybe you don't know, you probably don't. I love a bit of wrestling. I trained to be a wrestler myself. Um, and uh, I was, in the end, I'm just, you know, I wasn't particularly good at it but i do love a bit of wrestling and i wanted to introduce dave to some so we just watched uh, lucha underground which is a mexican telenovela soap opera wrestling show uh, that is baked into like a you know a 24 part tv series with about three or four seasons uh, and we watched the aztec warfare in season two uh, so uh well first off dave did you enjoy it what did you think <laughs> i thought it was pretty wonderful like i just um so going into it, I just wasn't expecting something that was quite as acrobatic and fast-paced as it was. Like, truly some athletic displays from extremely muscly men. <laughs> exactly. And some muscly women as well. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, Mexican wrestling's great. Like, it's it's very much kind of like a circus act for entertainment for everyone. A lot of flips, a lot of trapeze, a lot of, like, you know, it's it has, like, kind of this also rabid, passionate, cultural importance as well i think which uh, adds a lot of fervor to the crowd and makes the entire thing a lot more interesting um but yeah uh, was the uh, would you would you watch more wrestling do you think would you be up for watching more mexican stuff would you want to watch something else uh and uh yeah how about that uh i think i would be quite into watching more of it with you like um like i, I don't think i'd be and and let's not say never, but like um, I don't think I'd be into like watching like whole seasons of it. Yeah. I think I'd love to watch more event specials like this. Exactly, like, there's uh, a few good ones. I think all of the Aztec Warfare's are really entertaining uh, and well worth watching. I think all the ones of these they've done. Um, there's like a dark Alice in Wonderland style faction that they introduce in the next season with like the Mad Hatter and the Rabbit. And stuff who come in and crash the Aztec warfare, and you see a bunch of them, uh, and it kind of evolves over time. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's good fun. Um, and uh, yeah, it would be nice to show you some Japanese wrestling as well, uh, just so you can see the difference. But if you like the acrobaticness and the chaos, uh, and a lot of kind of the silly stuff, then that's not going to be there in the same way in Japan. Um, even though there are some wrestlers that do that kind of stuff. Um, if you do like that kind of silliness, there is a promotion called DDT who do specialize in silly wrestling. Uh, they have fights in water parks where they have like a, a referee in his speedos and everyone else is fighting down slides. They have a, <laughs> uh, a big star is like the failed idol, Maki Ito, who's a big women's wrestler who is, she was an idol, but she, she can't sing and wasn't very good. Uh, but she has an incredibly hard head. Which is her special ability. She can ability. kick ass. No, her head's really hard. So she can survive any blow to the head is her special ability. But she sings really badly and comes to the stage like screaming, um, which is fantastic. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of really good, um, really good stuff. There's also a bunch of stuff that I wouldn't recommend to any human being, like a very sexually inappropriate Ronald McDonald wrestler. Um, yeah, I would, would not recommend that for anyone. But there is some good stuff. Don't kick shame, Ben. <laughs> no, <laughs> if it's your thing, then I think that's cool. But it doesn't look like it's consensual. Um, so uh, <laughs> no, he's he's not 
he, he's in oh a, right no his behavior i, I was like yeah I yeah yeah no no I, I don't know why i thought you meant like unconsensual clown makeup like <laughs> You you will be kind against your will. Uh, there is the, there, no, it's uh, they actually don't have a wrestler. They just stand with a net outside of like Argos and just trap people and paint them up like clowns and push them into the ring. Uh, that's a that's a show waiting to happen. But cool, right? Well, yeah. So I guess uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about uh, Dave's entrance into wrestling, and in return, Dave promises to share some fantastic sci-fi, some other great TV shows with me as I divulge in my uh, fervent love of wrestling. Um, but normally on the show, we will kind of go into what we've been playing, what we've been watching. Today, we've decided to start a little bit with the news, just to mix things up. Although I guess from your perspective, we won't actually be mixing anything up, because uh, this is probably the first time you'll have heard the news. Unless you're, li- you're a time traveller, or you're listening backwards, in which case, this will be strange. But I can't speak for that. But we're going to start with the news anyway. So, starting off with one of the, uh, the big ones uh, over the past month which is Starfield and Redfall. Uh, Starfield being Bethesda's premier Elder Scrolls follow-up, the big sci-fi RPG they've been working on, which is an Xbox and PC exclusive. And Redfall, Arkane's four-player co-op vampire hunting game in the vein of Left 4 Dead. They have both been delayed to early 2023. Uh, What do you feel about that, Dave? Oh, I wasn't really following either's development, so I, I didn't even realize they were coming out this year. So the news hasn't really thrown me off or anything. Uh, I guess I'm a little disappointed there's not a Starfield coming sooner, because even though I'm a bit tired of the Bethesda formula, it has been a while since we got Fallout 4. Maybe they've learned some uh, lessons from that game. And even if they haven't, I am kind of keen to explore a new sci-fi setting. Exactly. Like, I think one of the things that I think concerned me a little bit is there's been a lot of leaks uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, insider information coming from Bethesda. And one of the devs called it the next cyberpunk in that it was. And it's very sad that the legacy of cyberpunk is going to be that. But unfortunately, that's the case. Um but yeah, it's uh, they were saying that it, it's not in a state where it could be released. It desperately needs delaying. Um, and I'm really glad to hear that it has been. Uh, I, I think the bigger and more pressing problem that is really kind of awaiting Microsoft at the minute is that they have absolutely no games of note this year. Um, like they had, I don't think they've had really any holiday games at all. So nothing for that November period that is also important to kind of shifting consoles and to getting people on board. Uh, no big AAA games at all. Sony isn't exactly, you know, you know, rich in this department. Uh, the only one of note that they're really boasting is going to be God of War, which is a big one. People are very excited for that. Uh, I'm sure myself included as well. Um, but Microsoft don't really have any games at all to kind of move some consoles, which is pretty pretty concerning. I think if you're in their position, um, but not a problem for me because I have so many games to play. I've got Games Pass, which things are constantly coming out for as well. I just picked up Umarangi Generations on Games Pass yesterday. I've been playing a bunch of Games Pass games. Citizen Sleeper we both played as well, so Microsoft is still my choice because they keep feeding me free games, and I love that. Uh, But uh, not looking great for general releases from the Microsoft camp this year. So uh, a little concerning if you're a Microsoft fan, but, uh, you know, better for the games and hopefully better for the employees. Fingers crossed. 
Uh, I mean, one of the things that unfortunately happens with all these delays is that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the dev team can crunch less or that they have an easier time. It could just prolong the suffering, prolong the crunch. Um, and that's one thing I really hope for Starfield and Redfall is that they delay again. I would expect pretty much every single game around to be delayed, to have at least one delay. Uh, and I expect God of War to be delayed as well. I My bet, pretty much 100%, is that it doesn't come out this year. It gets delayed to next year. And this is going to be generally a bit of a wash for games this year in terms of big AAA releases, but not for us. We've had plenty of games this year. My list is already about 50 games long for this year. I've played so many, uh, and I'm going to continue to play a bunch of great games. So not a big problem for me at all. Yeah, there's also great games coming out um, that aren't AAA titles, so... I think I don't think players will suffer. Uh, don't really care that Microsoft and Sony aren't going to make lots of extra holiday money. Like, although to be honest, they probably still will. Like, the, these stuff sell like hotcakes. Exactly, they're selling as many Xboxes and Playstations pretty much as they can make them because of the chip shortage and people are going to continue to buy them up. So it doesn't matter too much, uh, and they still have that big back catalogue of games that you can you can get for just you know a tenner whenever you join the platform. So uh, we love Games Pass, um, and uh, it's a pretty good deal. So I can't see them being too annoyed about the entire thing, but it is a bit of a blow, um, and it definitely shows where games have gone because there was a time when it would have been inconceivable for a, one of the big console manufacturers not to have a November release slate. But this is just where we are, and it's desperate times. We're really seeing the big COVID times, but also the big expectations and uh, maybe people putting release dates a little bit ahead of the ho- ahead of the cart, you know? Um, but yeah, a little, little concerning on, on, on that front for them. Cool. Anything else to add? Yeah, no, I just want to add on what you said about, like, games being de- delayed for the sake of the developers. I mean, I say delay the game as many years as it takes. Like, these AAA games are fucking enormous. Like, and the idea that they will be crunching, because it's not just until the game's released, there's like going to be like crunch afterwards to fix all the bugs. And I don't know, probably moving right into making DLC for these games. Like, it's probably never ending. Yeah, it's just a bit of a, a bit of churn. Um, and yeah, it is really unfortunate. And I think what adds a lot of pressure as well is that a bad release that is really out of the hands of the developers. They don't get to choose when their game releases. Um, it's the publisher does. I'm sure if they would like to kind of keep a hold of the game until it was as good as it could be. But unfortunately, the money's going to run out at some point and they need to start recouping those costs. And it only takes one game to really, you know, really, really bugger your chances of being like do you remember how the, the the internet absolutely adored cd project red they were the poster child for everyone and anyone who liked a good game uh, and then cyberpunk comes out it's a quite a big fiasco uh it i mean to be fair it's a fiasco of a level that i don't think we've really seen before um it was removed from the playstation store it was doing horrendously badly and now their stocks tanked and they've tanked and no one will really trust them to kind of make those same kind of games again it's rough well, do you think they could have a sort of a, I forget the name of the developer, the developers of No Man's Sky, because they, they managed to rehabilitate their image like uh, with all the free updates over the years since the game came out. Hello Games have done an incredible job. Um, I think one down- downside, I think, of what CD Projekt have done 
is it doesn't feel like they've made any meaningful updates to the game in almost two years since its launch because they've been too busy trying to kind of fix what's already there. Um, I think the difference between No Man's Sky and CD Projekt is CD, uh, No Man's Sky had some stuff, but they didn't have all of the stuff that they should have, so they could start to add in that stuff. Whereas I think CD Projekt's uh, Cyberpunk not only missed a load of stuff, but the things that were there was really broken, and unfortunately they spent two years trying to actually fix the stuff that was in the game to begin with, not add new things, which would be like, you know, seen as adding continual p- push to the game. Saying that... I have, and I'm sure everyone, if you've been online, has seen the marketing push for Cyberpunk again recently. Um, it's been kind of back on all the news tickers. It's been back in the kind of public consciousness again. Uh, people are starting to talk about Cyberpunk, think about Cyberpunk again, because CD Projekt are pay- pushing that out. Because they just pushed out a big update, and they've got the next-gen consoles kind of on the timeline to come out. So they're making a concerted effort again and again to get people playing Cyberpunk, but I think it's too late. Um, but the good news is... They do have an IP that I think they would really have to mess up, and that's The Witcher. And they do have a Witcher coming out again. We we covered it a few weeks ago, although I guess you wouldn't have heard that. Uh, I don't know why I keep making references to the shows that people can't hear. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know they're making a brand new cyber, uh, brand new Witcher in the Unreal Engine, and it's gonna uh, that's gonna be a huge game. And if they do that right, then it's so easy to get back on their feet again. But I think there's very little stock and they've burned up all that goodwill and CD Projekt. And it's it's sad to see, even if they were a abusive monolith that burned through workers and made blood diamonds of games that were kind of born out of the low wages and suffering of Polish game developers. Um, but that's the way it is. And talking about the suffering of games developers against publishers... We have a little story that's broke recently. It's very sad. A friend of the podcast, Yuji Naka, uh, has mentioned that he has just unsuccessfully taken Square Enix to court over their treatment of Baron Wonderworld, um, which is his 3D platformer that was launched to a flat and fart-sounding fanfare uh, as it was launched into Thrust Upon the World. Um, I kind of want to play it, if I'm honest. I want to give it a go at some point, but I do not want to pay £40 for it. I am also morbidly curious about the whole thing. Every detail I hear about it makes me think, what a train wreck. And it's also because it was the, the point of it was to capture an older era of video games. I kind of want to maybe revisit that for nostalgia's sake as well. I think the biggest sin that a video game can possibly perpetrate or any media in general is that it is boring i do not want to play a game that is boring i want to play a game that either is really good or really bad um and i think balan wonderworld it continually does interesting stuff it is just feels like you're playing through porridge um (laughs) you know like it's it feels bad to play and there's just so much wrong with it I would like to, I think if I, I'm happy to pay like a tenner. I think if I pay a tenner, I get a few bottles of beer, I sit there and I get ready for a Wonder World and I will happily play through it. Although, given this recent news, I'm a little less keen to do so. Um, because Yuji Naka is saying that he is very, very angry with Square Enix uh, for kind of bungling the release of the game. The game was not ready to be released. It was not in a state where it could. He repeatedly said that he did not want to release it. But unfortunately, they did. Uh, and I have a quote in his uh, in his uh, release about this. He believes that Square Enix 
is a company that does not care about games and does not care about their fans. Square Enix is a bad company, um, which is pretty damning. Yuji Naka, I don't know much about Yuji Naka, even though he is our best mate. Um, but he doesn't. He isn't really someone who's come out on the, you know, come out a lot in the past. There isn't like a plethora of big no things that he said or big you know um feuds that he's had with companies uh he's not a big man on twitter i don't i don't think he tweets like exactly this is, is out is of character of yeah i mean i wish i wish none of us tweeted but it's the way you have to live uh but um i think he he's definitely felt the need to speak out about this because unfortunately this has led to the retirement of a legend in the games industry um, this is this is unfortunately oh, maybe shit. is he, he's completely out of games now. Yeah, this is the game that forced him into retirement. He has announced his retirement following this game. I think maybe he'll come out of retirement. Uh, who knows? Maybe he'll want to right this wrong. Now it's very much seen in the public eye as not being his fault. But I think unfortunately, a lot of the blame for this game was heaped upon Yuji Naka and really sullied his name, the name of a legend. And I think that's what forced him into a bit of a shameful. Um, retirement because the game was went across so badly because it really was his last hope um, which I think makes the whole thing much more depressing and I think um, I have some opinions I guess on creatives in the games industry in that I believe it's important we retain individuals but I think that individuals in the games industry are not particularly important in the scheme of things like we should try to retain them if they have good ideas, if they have a soul, if they make games that feel like they're made by humans, then we should keep them around. But I think what actually what the actual product that you see that gets delivered to you has a lot more to do with the resources allocated to it, with the funding, with the budgeting and the production than it has to do with any creative that makes it. And that may sound incredibly depressing for anyone involved. Uh, but I actually think yeah. it's very encouraging because I think that if given the proper time, if given the proper effort and resources, I believe that most of the games developers that even make the games that you think are bad will make a good game. Even the bad games are made by good games developers. They just unfortunately didn't get the chance to really work on their on their craft and make something good. Um, and I think unfortunately that's the case that's happened here. A good games developer hasn't been given the resources he needs to flourish and succeed. And that's what's had the bigger impact on this game being a bad game not Yuji Naka being a shameful bad games developer. Um. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. I don't really buy into the whole auteur theory of anything, much less uh, games. Because uh, I, I think um, you you can get a case where a particular personality in a game often, in my opinion, often does more bad than good. See your David Cages, for example. But, you know, as far as I'm aware, Yuji Naka seems to be a nice gentleman, you know, make, just makes his games, has been doing so for decades. So I think you're right. It's a case of him just not being supported enough. And his statement about thinking that Square Enix doesn't really like games, I think is held out by other news and that they sold off one of the most beloved franchises that they didn't know what to do with, Tomb Raider, to invest in NFTs. Indeed, yeah. This is more incredibly harrowing news that Square Enix are currently looking to modular, modularize and sell off pieces of their company and have started with a bunch of their IPs being sold off. Uh, this isn't just Lara Croft. Uh, we've also had a bunch of other things they've sold, I think including like Gex and uh, <laughs> amongst many, many other things. Uh, they've sold off a bunch of their IPs there, but we are looking towards 
Square Enix slowly selling off all their individual studios to different places and looking to liquidize, and they seemed especially upset with their English game studios, English-speaking game studios, and American game studios, who they thought had been performing below expectations for quite some time. Um, the Avengers game really didn't go over so well. I don't really think it's necessarily the fault of um, the Avengers IP. I think the game itself, the proof was in the pudding. It wasn't really what people wanted, and it also wasn't a hugely good game, uh, to be honest. But I think Guardians of the Galaxy, the idea that that game is a sh- is shameful is, is alien to me. That game was exactly what people wanted, was a good game by all accounts, and was definitely a labor of love, fantastic storytelling, a lot of fun. It comes highly recommended from me. I think it's a great game. Uh, but it just didn't sell well. And uh, it has been unfortunately rubbed in with just the Marvel losses from the kind of Square Enix camp, and it's very sad to see. Um, I'm, uh, but hopefully more people can do what they want with those, and I'd like to see other companies get a shot at doing some Marvel projects. So why not? I say uh, give it to some other companies if Square Enix can't be the ones to help, and maybe some new production and new management will be what the developers need to succeed. So here's hoping. Yeah, here's hoping. Now we brought on to a bit more news. Uh, Jim Ryan's uh, interesting emails uh, following the uh, overturning of the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade, uh, in that the, he decided to pen an email. He took actual human time out of his day, um, although I wouldn't call it human time. It's more like some kind of weird robot time from him to assure his company that uh, they should respect all uh, choices regarding reproductive rights just not the choice that matters and uh to also and then i regaled them to give them some perspective on about two emails worth of stories about his two cats and how he wishes to get a dog again showing that jim ryan is probably not a human being uh, and a lot of executives are probably cyborg vampire people um however one people that some people that are involved with Sony now, Bungie, have had a very different um, reaction to this kind of stuff and have made substantial, uh, div- um, have substantially came out in support of the uh, reproductive choice uh, and the uh, being reproductive rights being an integral part of human rights and have made a big donation and said they will not be muzzled following their induction into Sony in an active um, reaction to Jim Ryan's statement. So it seems that so uh, that uh, Bungie have decided to go down fighting, and they're going to use their platform to do the best they can, which is incredibly encouraging. But as for the rest of Sony and everything controlled by Jim Ryan, it's looking bleak. It's looking very, very, very yeah. Bleak. In fact, I mean, it's it's a real shame. I never would have thought Master Chief would be like pretty much the only person in games just being like, yeah, you know, basic human rights. They're good. <laughs> well, we've seen Master and just cr- and just crickets from the rest, and then people like Jim Ryan being like, "I'm going to be as demented as possible," well, and in, in the- imply oh. that the only thing I want from people is obedience, obedience like my dog. <laughs> that was one of the other weird. I mean, not not the hu- uh, headline of the email, but one of the weirder parts is that he ratted on about how obedience is the best quality you can have. That is that is bleak indeed. Uh, just to correct you as well, Bungie no longer own Master Chief. Uh, the uh, Destiny is their, is their big thing that they own. Master Chief is owned by 343, owned by Microsoft. Um, whereas Sony own uh, 
Bungie now, which is why it's so I guess okay, so pertinent. De- De- Destiny Chief then. I I, I don't know anything about Destiny. Destiny so. Chief, yes, and yeah. uh, the Destiny Man. Uh, but uh, interestingly, um, Master Chief has answered the age-old question: Does he fuck? He does. Uh, and fans are very excited about that recently, as Master Chief has uh, had sex and the internet goes wild. Um, I have absolutely no thoughts on this. Good for Master Chief. I hope he has a nice time. I hope he had a nice time. Uh, good, good for Master Chief. Uh, but yeah. Um. I, I'm actually, I didn't realize that people were going wild for it in a positive way, because all I've seen on people is Twitter getting real mad because they're like, Master Chief can't have sex. It's in the canon that he can't have sex. And then people arguing over whether it's like, oh no, there's an emotional inhibitor or something like that. And then when you're just hearing about it without knowing anything about Halo, it just sounds utterly deranged. And they're like, well, he turned off the emotional inhibitor. But then people are like, yeah, but what about the drugs that means he can't get a boner? Like, and I'm just like, how, like, as some lore arguments, I mean, I mean, I mean I'm an absolute nerd. I, I will have debates about things in star trek and the like but i don't think i would talk about like picard's boners as much as halo fans are talking about master chiefs well it's quite fantastic like uh, there's been a recent post uh, kind of an expose confirmed by neil gaiman himself that when he was making sandman uh he was told he couldn't mention masturbation because and i quote people do not masturbate in the dc universe which he said that explains a lot about the DC universe. Um, but it's this kind of weird puritanical aspect. <laughs> it's amazing. I cannot believe I've never heard of that before. It's incredible. It's so good. But, but he is like, I mean, I don't like Neil Gaiman, but I've got to hand it to him. He's right. That does explain a lot about the DC universe. Like, Dick Grayson suddenly makes a lot more sense to me now. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think people have been going pretty wild about it. We're not big Halo fans. Um, well, I mean, I'm not. I can't. I did read a few of the books when I was younger. It's probably a big deal about Master Chief having sex, but uh, I think it is just funny that it's a deal in the first place. I think it's quite amusing. Uh, and I think it's just mean that he made Cortana watch. I don't think she has any choice, right? Like, she just kind of has to. Um, exactly. She didn't have a choice. That's messed up. <laughs> it's that kind of uh, that classic um, meme with like the 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 myth it's like the the myth of consexual sex and it's like he chooses she chooses and it has jesus but he didn't choose like i really hope someone's made that meme with cortana instead of jesus um but yeah <laughs> has to exist has to exist it has to exist it's such an easy win if not we're gonna birth it into existence following this podcast if you have any memes to send us uh, then email them in i guess if you want to make the meme but we'll have to check that it exists and our final piece of news, this is hot off the press, it just came out yesterday, that Electronic Arts and NBC have had a merger fall apart at the very last minute. Uh, now checking some of the news about this, uh, this is largely down to uh, the head of Electronic Arts, uh, Andrew Wilson, intend- um, insisting on him running the combined company. Uh, this is particularly ridiculous when you keep in mind that NBC is around um 10 to 15 times sizes larger than ea um and he wants to be the one in charge of the combined entity however ea is also having talks with disney apple and amazon they're continually talking with people they're talking with everyone they can because they are very interested in selling off the company and merging with someone and the same thing with ubisoft they have been very very vocal about merging with a private equity firm to try and shield themselves away from acquisition square enix is trying to be acquired 
uh, quite desperately to sell off all its individual pieces. It is Aquiromania running wild. Everyone's trying to get a piece of the pie. Everyone's trying to get some action there. And that's exactly what we're seeing more and more. And I expect by this time in two years, uh, everyone will have been acquired by one large monolith who owns everything. And everyone else will have And as we know with uh, Disney and Marvel and all that, it works out famously, creatively speaking. It works out incredibly and well. And I, sh- I should point out that was sarcasm. It does not work out great. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> but we may finally get our action game that has everybody in it. Uh, you know, I can actually I can actually fight. <laughs> I can I can fight a Snoop Dogg against Godzilla, Godzilla and King Kong. Oh wait, that already exists. We, uh, we can just do one of those <laughs> <laughs> just do one of those uh, obnoxious videos where you just sit and watch a scene where it just shows lots of images of heroes standing there and then we can go nuts and be like, Master Chief, Marv from Fire Emblem, Super Mario and I do worry about this. Like, I worry that art just eats itself and we never get anything new. Like, it is not a benefit of the things you're making just to have something else turn up, even if it makes you happy. You know, you can have characters that have good arcs, that are entertaining, that mean something, that have some significance to someone, or you get that cheap pop, uh, that cheap reaction from people as suddenly Chip and Dale pop up in the new Barney, Barney cartoon, or, you know... Uh, uh someone like delia smith pops up in super smash brothers like it's 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 ridiculous and people will be happy and it'll make people happy it'll make me happy to see delia smith appear in super smash brothers but it's not a worthy endeavor it's not something that's interesting or worth your time it is just manufacturing serotonin in a in a in a random way and and that's fine but hopefully that's not all we get and unfortunately it, it might there is a world where it might be um which is kind of sad but there, it can be done right. Uh, the new multiversus uh, fighting game that got uh, kind of revealed today. I watched some uh, gameplay footage of it last night, and it looks amazing. Taz the Tasmanian Devil coats people in a buff called Tasty, and when they get enough Tasty, they get turned into a, a roast chicken, and he eats them. Um, Shaggy is ultra instinct <laughs> and fights people while flying. Um, Velma, when she crawls, she loses her glasses, and the entire screen blows up, and she can't see. The Iron Giant can fight Superman and Arya Stark from Game of Thrones and Gandalf. Um, it's incredible. Why doesn't this exist already? Well, no, it does. It's brilliant and it's in Closed Alpha very soon. So, if- I mean, you, so wait, wait, when you sent me the trailer the other day, you were actually excited about it. I, I thought you were sending me it as a joke. I think it is exciting <laughs> from the perspective of I can't tell if this is amazing or not, but I kind of love it. Like, it's free to play. I will play this game. I will give an in-depth review of what it is like to play Taz because, like, you get to fight Taz as Shaggy or fight Shaggy Arya Stark as Shaggy. Like, how can this not be a thing that you'd want? It's ridiculous. As long as this isn't all we have, but the fact that it exists, why wouldn't I want this? This is great. Um, I mean, for a dumb fighting game, it's not the worst thing in the world. (laughs) Like, I just... I just... Oh, it's just things that made me cringe, like the fact that the Iron Giant is in a fighting game of all things. Um, <laughs> Famous lover of violence, the Iron Giant, yes. At least, however, at least, unlike Ready Player One, they didn't give him a gun. Like, <laughs> like at least they understood that much. Like, and it's more cartoony, so you know, I'll I'll give it. Mu- I'll be much more lenient towards it than fuck, man. Ready Player One was a. It was an experience to watch in the cinema, let me tell you. 
<laughs> but uh, I think this could be fun, and uh, we'll see where it goes. It's interesting from the perspective of like they're really leaning into all the memes, which I think makes it funnier. Like they're going into kind of these idealized, funny version of all these characters. Kind of, it's almost like fan fiction of these characters. They're taking them and adding them into a new place, and uh, I think that could be kind of fun. I think what's more concerning is the OC characters they've made. They've made like some kind of weird rabbit jackalope thing with a star on its face, which is a new character that now fights Steven Universe and Finn the Human from Adventure Time. Um, very, very strange. I don't know why you would set them up as a rival when Finn and Steven are already the natural. <laughs> they Opposite. Oh, brother! Uh, they set it up with a, a wrestling <laughs> promo or something, and they flip on each other, and yeah, that's what I need. And I think they would both be up for that. They both seem like the type of young boy who'd be like, "Yeah, fuck yeah, wrestling." <laughs> I I just want like a really hammy wrestling manager game with all of these licensed IPs, where I can make a a program for Shaggy to work his way up and cut promos against Batman. You know that that's all I want. Um, and just be like to their diet no more carbs ever again and then watch their depression level rise slowly from not having we need carbs carbs are the 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 glue that keeps us together but taz knows what's up uh taz 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 knows anyway anything to talk about now on our news i think that's kind of all we've got from the news bag um fantastic then could you tell me a little bit about dairy girls which you have watched the complete season since we last talked so it must be good Oh yeah, I, like I started with just like a few. Uh, like I came to it late, which is embarrassing because I'd been hearing about it for ages and I just never sat down to watch it. And it is just like a rapid fire machine gun of jokes in a way that I really enjoy, where you feel like you're uh, you could miss you you're probably missing more jokes than you get in a given scene, and. It's backdrop of 1990s Northern Ireland is pretty good. Uh, there's just like a lot of humor from the political situation of the time. Like one of my favorite bits is when they are on or their way to a concert and they have a bag of alcohol, which um, their headmistress, who is a nun, uh, is on the same bus and asks about it. And rather than just say that the bag is theirs, because she doesn't know what's in it, they're like, we don't know who, what that bag is. And being in the middle of the troubles, it's like this unattended mystery bag must be a bomb. And it's just just pure class humor. like, And just, I don't know, the there's not a single character or actor who lets the show down. Like, the dynamics are on point. The way they interact with each other, because you you'll have like dynamics that exist in other comedy shows, like um, the father of like uh, of the main family of the show. Uh, he has his father-in-law who treats him uniformly badly in every scene, and in other shows that character would just be put down by everybody, but. Not, it's only from the grandfather because the grandfather is the type of character is like he loves his daughters and nobody is good enough for them, so that's why he treats them badly. But he also always fights back as well. I don't know, just they feel more authentic and less sitcom y, if that makes yeah, it does, sense. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and the last series just came out. I'd been watching it week on week with my flatmate, and it would always cheer me up. And I came to it late, and I'm sad it's over. Like it's only been in my life for like two months, and I'm like, oh damn. It's I think, like Father Ted, which was a cultural bastion, like it cannot be overstated just how big of a deal Father Ted was for Ireland and how important it was culturally. Like what a what a big deal it was. I think Derry Girls has the potential to be that for Northern Ireland. Um, I have a bunch of mates who are Northern Irish. I won't rat them out because being friends with an English person is actually a federal crime. But I think the <laughs> it, they talk about how in the show they go to Portrush for their holidays or they go to a particular place on the bus and that's exactly what they did on the bus or they go through something and there's an exact thing or you know obviously you know if you if you say you're a muslim in northern ireland they'll ask if you're a catholic or a protestant muslim uh like the the schism entirely caused by england uh in northern ireland uh that caused the uh unavoidable loss of life and such a huge upheaval within the political structure and still continues to do so today is very much evident in every part of the comedy and it is a very authentic and close to the chest tale um do you feel you were missing out on some jokes do you think that there was a little bit that you missed out on because obviously you're not from northern ireland yourself or did your distance or, or did your distance from england yourself in a way uh, help you to kind of bond with it and get a little bit of it because you know it's the same common enemy i guess um. uh, i don't think the humor was ever so specific to northern ireland that there were jokes that you could miss in the audience um maybe, maybe like if you're struggling with the accent you might not the jokes might go, go over your head but yes there was definitely times in it that I was joining in on the English bashing a bit. Because uh, one of the, the main characters is uh, the cousin of another main character who is from England. And they just, they're constantly bashing him for being English. He'll just have like, he'll insist he can't he do something. Like, uh, <laughs> he can't he fight this big guy because, oh, well, he's, he's, he's wee and he's a bit, you know, in fact, you just wouldn't fight a big guy like uh, they're asking him to, and they're like, "Oh well, five years took over the fucking world. Eh? We thought you'd have a few tricks." <laughs> <laughs> it's just like bashing like that that I really enjoy. But there's some stuff like uh, Protestants like, keeping toasters in the cupboard as well, um, as being kind of an interesting <laughs> thing of like, it's very funny if you're from around there. Um, I think that there's probably some kind of science behind it, like Catholics having more kids, so they need to keep the toaster out because people are going to need more toast. So, you know, some, something like that, I don't know. But like, it's there's these kind of little Protestant Catholic jokes that only really make sense if you're from there, but it kind of makes sense, and they're still you can still get the joke. Like, I think that's the best kind of in-joke, when you don't need to be in the joke to enjoy it. It's still kind of just funny in of itself, and you can still have a good time, and that's part of the magic of the show. Um, like I think my other favorite part of the show is the uh, the lead, uh, the lead lass. Her face can contort like a a warm plimsoll in gym class, like like a piece of rubber. It just kind of like creases in on itself and like frowns into like a weird banana of a face, and then just immediately kind of like pops back in on itself and like contorts somewhere else. Her faces it's like silly putty. Um, like it's it's incredible the thing the expressions she can pull off. It's quite quite amazing. Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. And I also just love that she has main character syndrome. It is a great characteristic for your lead comedy character to have because 
just I don't know, just like her, like her habit of narrating her life as if she's like the ma- main character of a novel, and then immediately being reminded about just you know, despite the fact that you know, set in the troubles, um, extremely important time in Northern Ireland, that yeah, you are still a normal kid, like with your limited uh control over your life and just i don't know it's just this despite being about a time i did not live through and a place i did not live in i think they do a good job of making everything relatable uh which i think is a delicate balancing act fantastic writing of the show i really can't wait to see what the lisa mcgee i think her name is uh goes on to do after dairy girls uh I think it's fundamentally a really important period to cover as well, because growing up in the English schooling system, we were not taught about the Troubles. No one even mentions them, despite the fact they only happened within our lifetime, you know, when we were very small, probably. Um, They're such a recent thing that happened, yet they're something that no one talks about. Um, And I think there's a lot of people who will never really understand how badly England destroyed Northern Ireland, how badly we destroyed the rest of the world, why everyone hates us and why we deserve to be hated. And it's just not taught. No one mentions it. No one really knows. No one knows that they should be sorry, that they should, that things, things are bad and we made them bad because it's just never taught. And I think it's nice to have media that does tell about this period because it's a period that the English schooling system doesn't want you to know about. So it's, I, hope it, I hope it gets bigger over here, uh, or over in England. I hope it gets bigger uh, and continues to do so. Um, but yeah, our next section, uh, unless you have anything to follow up on Dairy Girls, is... No, no. Although, uh, just if you're listening and you haven't seen it, do yourself a favour and check Fantastic. it out. Fantastic. Uh, so here's going to be a regular slot on the podcast, the Anime Roundup. I watch too much anime, and if I was to go into all of them, it would take me ages. So I have a list of what I've been watching week to week. And I'll give it like a brief kind of qualitative assessment of whether you should watch it or not. Uh, first tip is Peripikome. It is The Adventures of Zhuge Liang, the, the, uh, the tactician and general of, the three, of one of the three kingdoms uh, in ancient China. And he is now in our time in downtown Tokyo. And he is being thrust upon the music scene to manage an idol who wants to make it big in the festival scene and managing a nightclub. And how Zhuge Liang uses his tactics <laughs> to help his uh, to help the superstar gain you know success and to kind of rise to the top. It's amazing. Uh, I really enjoyed this. It, I did not expect it to. I think a lot of the reason why I like it so much is that it was a sleeper hit. Um, it's very funny. And kind of heartwarming, and I enjoyed it. So I'd give this one a, a four, four out of five from me. You should you should watch it if you get the chance. Uh, Kaguya Sama, which is a romantic comedy that I have been following in manga form for quite some time. It is about two people that can't confess to each other because it puts them in a weakened state, and thus come up with these elaborate, super genius mind games to try and force each other into confessing. But unfortunately, they're both also very incompetent in a lot of ways and trip up continues to be incredible this particular season has been absolutely phenomenal i look forward to it every week it's hilarious five out of five from me you should watch it spy family has taken the internet by storm it is based on kind of a the fall of the berlin wall era um kind of you know maybe even kind of cold war era i guess uh in berlin and it is an undercover spy a mind reading esper child and a mum who is an assassin uh, who all have a deceiving each other to a certain extent to try and say that they're something they're not. 
and basically they make this kind of ramshackle family who is pretend to everyone really uh, to try and accompany that accomplish their goal the spy to infiltrate a school the assassin to continue to work as an assassin and the uh the child who's a mind reader to finally get a family uh, and it's it's there's a reason why the internet loves this it's, it's brilliant so five out of Oh yeah, I've been seeing like fan art for it all over. Five out of five from me. You should watch it. Uh, <laughs> Diemon, which is a anime about making sweets. I watched this. I'm not particularly excited to watch it. It's nice. It's relatively like I think you would probably watch this and enjoy it. It's not a bad show by any means, but it's also not an exemplary show. I don't think it's an incredible show. So like a two or a three for me. But I still think you could watch this and have a fine time. It's very easy to consume. And I think that's fine. That's what you need sometimes. And finally, Shikamori's Not a Cutie, which is the high school romance about a uh, kind of a more effeminate man who's not very good at defending himself and his girlfriend, who's really beautiful, but also is kind of a superhero of some capacity and can kick rocks out of the air with her hands. Um, and... It's just not particularly inspiring, to be honest. It is fine. I give it a two. Not something I super duper look forward to each week, but I still watch it because I'm sad. Um, any follow up to that, Dave? Are you going to watch any of those? Uh, I think I'll watch Spy F- X Family. Yep, Spy Family. Called. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just because that's that's one I've just been seeing everyone just sort of universally beloved. Although I'll probably wait until it's all out because. I'm a binge watcher, and uh, yeah, I don't know why, but I, I kind of reserve my weekly watchings for American shows. They're just a bit easier to get. I know it's not less that they're easier to get, and more that I like to usually put them on in the background while doing something else. And with anime, because I am a subtitled person, I have to sit and give it all my attention. Makes complete sense. Um, I will say, if you want to watch Kaguya Sama, which I'd recommend, they have an excellent dub. The dub's really good for that. Uh, I think the dub in general is really good for most of these things, to be honest. So I think you could really enjoy the dubs uh, for any of these if you wanted to. Um, and I would give a special recommendation to Perifi Kome. It is very much an unheard of. Like, it's not a popular manga. No one had really heard of it until it kind of premiered, I think. It's been really under the radar, and it's been fantastic. I've been really enjoying it. So uh, I would recommend watching Kaguya Sama along with that if you could, and maybe Peripi Kome if you fancy it. It's great. Cool. Uh, on that subject, uh, could you talk a little bit about The Harder They Fall first, please? Uh, what is The Harder They Fall? Harder They Fall is an American Western film where... I don't know if it's really a conceit or anything, but just like pretty much the entire cast is uh, black people. Um, it's not really a, a story thing. It's just it's just there. It's accepted, and I think it's you know kind of made it to in the response to that that you know most westerns are incredibly white. Let's do a black one, and you know I, I wouldn't give it like ten out of ten or anything, but I did enjoy my entire time with it um i like idris elba lakeith stanfield is in it as a particularly good villainous cowboy um quite like seeing his villainous turn um the yeah the plot's pretty basic as far as a western goes it's serviceable um the acting all around is pretty good there are a few moments 
in the action sequences at like the climax of the film that made me think oh man if they were more like this it's like a kind of stylized gun fighting fist fighting sort of thing going on if the if all the action sequences were like that i think the film would have been a bit more memorable but if you've got like a couple hours and nothing to watch i'd highly recommend it it's 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 good for the time you're watching it um even if it's not like top tier and anyone who got like mad at the fact that you know it's a majority black cast they can get in the sea like because there's not a single person who lets the lets the film down like i don't think that it has to be but actually there is a bunch of black cowboys in history it's not a thing that didn't exist even if you were going at it from the historically accuracy angle, you have no legs to stand on. Not that I think that argument ever has any legs to stand on, because yeah. But even oh, in this absolutely. case, it actually does, and there's a bunch of black cowboys. So uh, you know, we'll see you in the Atlantic, I guess. But um, are you much of a fan of westerns in general? You know, is there any westerns that you think are particularly good, and how does it stack up um, against those? I grew up uh, watching a fair amount of westerns, uh, just because they were the kind of thing that was often on, like tv daytime on a saturday and also when i studied media studies in high school the person who ran the class uh classes was a big western fan so westerns were often the thing that we were watching in in his class so a lot of the classic westerns i've seen came from there uh i think i tend to really like the ones that are like doing something with the genre like trying to invert it or play with it whereas i guess what the reason why i like despite the fact as much as i enjoyed the harder they fall i don't think it was particularly special because it's it's playing the western a lot more straight like there there's no subversions or anything to it like it is just more like westerns are fun let's do a fun western and on that they absolutely deliver um so it's maybe not the type of western i particularly enjoy the most but it's definitely worth your time i'm having a look at some stills of it now and the cinematography looks incredibly cool uh, like it looks very striking a lot of like medium to full length shots where you get a lot of the kind of context of the people behind them as well uh like a lot of i think actually that's a you know the man with no name has some absolutely fantastic instances of those uh, amazing cinematography as well um uh, all those kind of those kind of movies and it's very reminiscent of that in terms of the kind of shots i see here it looks really visually stunning um yeah actually now that you mentioned i do think uh, if if you're trying to compare it to like what kind of westerns it's most evocative of it would be things like uh maybe like a typical eastwood western exactly like with your main character who's you know the good guy relative to everyone else but not necessarily you know like a white knight yeah exactly kind of a, a bit of a tweener um that's cool so yeah, um, I, a little bit of recommendation for How Do They Fall. I think it looks kind of cool. I think I'm really interested by the soundtrack. Now I read about it as well. That interests me. And also I'm... A, I, I'm not hmm. a music person, so there, I was probably not getting as much from the soundtrack as the average person would. Um, I would say I enjoyed the soundtrack. For yeah, I think I'm reading here it has a Pan-African soundtrack, which is really cool. Um, with some uh, some uh, Felicuti and things like that, which we love. But... Um, but yeah, a little bit of that. 
Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit now, and I think you can chip in. I don't know. Actually, we should guess. Where have you got up to in Better Call Saul? Are you up to date? I'm okay, to so... Are we, going to, are we going to discuss Better Call Saul? Is it, is it worth maybe waiting until the mid-season finale is out, or do you want to start? I don't think we have to spoil it. There. I think we can maybe talk about some general things about Better Call Saul, uh, and we'll spoil it at a later date. So we'll just kind of talk about some... Oh, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not mm. worried about spoilers necessarily. Just just we're, I don't know, we're one week away from like a climax. Ah, we can talk about it that time too, but I, I love yeah, Better Call Saul. I think it's the, one of the best things on TV at the minute. The cinematography... Uh, the places they go and the kind of performances are incredible. Amazing performance from uh, Michael Mando and Nacho Vega towards the start of the season, which is brilliant. The first few episodes, he's really on fire. Um, personally, for me, I have a real soft spot for Howard Hamlin. Um, and there was a recent uh, scene in one of the uh, where he makes this kind of beautiful latte art with a peace symbol on for his wife and just pours it all over the table to get in a work mug and i I love that they're making you feel so bad for howard um i am almost certain he's gonna die but i always yeah like if not dead wish he was dead kind of horrible end for his character i always feel so bad for howard he's not a bad guy i think he i think you know for a lawyer i think he is a good guy he is actually a good guy uh, who has any needs like any human being. It's just he was kind of taken under by Chuck and influenced by Chuck, and Chuck was the bad guy, but Chuck's no longer no longer in a position where he can be... Um, he can have any revenge taken on him by Jimmy, and so Howard is just taking all of the brunt of that anger from, from Jimmy, and it's sad to see. I am a real Hamlin, Hamlin aficionado. I do like the man, and I want the best for him, but he's not getting the best. He's going to die. I think part of it is that the the guy who's playing him has a kind of natural yeah, charm to him that makes him more likable than he maybe deserves because he is kind of a self-important prick. But that's kind of the worst you can say about him and what they're building up for him in terms of uh, Jimmy and Kim's scheme against him is not deserving of it. Like, um, So yeah, I, I admit, yeah, in particular this season, I do think they're putting a lot of effort to make you feel sorry for him when the inevitable fall. I mean, he's absolutely self-important, but I think it's out of, an, you know, he's shown through his counselling sessions earlier on in the season that he knows he needs help and he wants to improve and to get it, to try and, like, save his marriage or to be a better person. Like, I think this whole kind of namaste stick, the stick that he's kind of bought into is just because he kind of needs it. You know, like, he needs it to kind of be the best person he can be. Uh and I think that that is okay, even if he doesn't really have time for anyone else because he still wants to kind of be better. And I think that is, I think that's, that's worth looking after. And look, and I think the reason I do like him, and I also worry for Kim. Uh, I worry for Kim more than I worry for anyone else. Um, I, uh, I hope she's going to be okay, but I know she won't. Things are not looking good and it's all bubbling and it's going to come to a nasty head in Better Call Saul. And it is a ride. It is a fantastic piece of TV. I'm 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 just guessing, but I feel like she's not gonna die. I feel like her fate is to like become the kind of lawyer she probably would have hated at the beginning mm. of the series. Like I think she's gonna end up out jimmying Jimmy. Like she's gonna go to places he wouldn't go. And yeah, I think that's how they're gonna go their separate ways. I think 
he's going to realize he made a horrible mistake and I don't want that for Kim. You you want it's like when Kim's doing her like whole pro bono stuff, you kind of want that for her. And I, maybe she'll still do that, but she'll be the unscrupulous lawyer and eh, she's doing it for the right people. I don't know if that's necessarily a bad ending for her, but yeah, I feel like this this last season is going to be more about her than it is about Jimmy. Exactly, and um, you know, we'll talk a bit more about this when we get some more Better Call Saul, but I do expect to see Slipping Kimmy slipping to the centre of the earth, going down, down, down. <laughs> but that's cool. I think uh, if there's one thing I've been a bit disappointed with this season, is like Mike has had none to do so far. Like... He's he's barely been in it. Apart from like a couple standout scenes with um Nacho in the first couple of episodes, um yeah, he's not really had much to do. Uh and I just enjoy watching Mike work. We haven't had a good episode of watching Mike work in quite a while. I like all of the very tender scenes with him and his granddaughter. It means a lot. Um and uh, I, I always feel bad for Mike. True, we haven't had much to do with Mike, but I also think that he has kind of the least um, things to tie up because he's very obviously in Breaking Bad and gets to have a full story there and where he is a standout. So I think that the rest of the characters need to be tied up in a little neat bow and need to have all their movement because they do not get to have any more movement past this point, I think. So... Absolutely. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's like a great weakness of the show. It's just, it's just you know, if you were asking me, if I in a perfect world, if I could have just a bit more, that's that's who I'd ask to give a bit, a more, bit more to Mike. in the show. Cool. But yeah, we're fans of Better Call Saul. We'll cover it more after the uh, after the mid-season finale, and we'll continue to cover it as it goes because it's great. And even if you haven't watched Breaking Bad, I'd recommend watching Better Call Saul. You can still enjoy it. Uh, it does, I think, take about two seasons to get to where it's incredible, and then it never stops and gets better every season. So, I would still recommend it, even if you aren't. Yeah, it's 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 a slow burner relative to Breaking Bad, but I I also don't think it's controversial to say I think it is superior. Absolutely, to is, and I think Bad, everyone's there with like... you. It's fantastic. Um, cool, and uh, you've also been watching a show that I love. Uh, I've been watching the most recent season, which I think is fantastic, and I've talked about it before. But you have been watching season one. What do you think of Atlanta? Now, it's a show that I tried to watch before. But I think um, I went into it knowing absolutely nothing about the show. And I was kind of expecting, I think, more of a straight comedy. Whereas, I think, you know, apart from a few gags every so often, I don't even know if I'd call it a comedy after, you know, having actually properly watched it and uh, actually gotten through the end of the first season. Because... Uh, yeah, I think I didn't expect it to be as sort of like trying to portray something about modern America. Because I don't know if I'd say it's realistic, because there, there are times it just absolutely isn't realistic. But um, even when it's not, when it's absurd, it is trying to say something about the society uh, in America. And I think it does a great job of doing that. Uh, I think now that I've actually watched a whole season, I've come to really like characters like um, Paperboy. Yeah, Paperboy. Uh, yeah, Paperboy being my favorite so far. Uh, I'm also a big fan of Lakeith Stanfield's Darius. 
I really like Van uh, as well. Uh, Zazie Beats, who's also Zazie in How Do They Beats. Fall, along with uh, yeah, yeah. She she's uh, which I should have said at the time. She's actually amazing in that as well. If anything, underutilized in that film. Um, but yeah, if anything, is Donald Glover's urn that I kind of don't like. But I don't think you're supposed to, to be fair. I don't think that's like, he's not a likable main character. And I think that makes it a bit more interesting in a way. But he's also a cipher in that I don't think you understand his headspace as clearly as the other characters. You do start to get a little bit more into him as it goes. But I agree with you. He's never the thing that gets the development or gets a lot of the the big stuff in the show. Like, I think the standouts are the episodes with Lakeith in season two. The, uh, and the, the incredible uh, solo episode with Alfred Pepperboy, and it's amazing in season two. So I really look forward to you watching some season two. It's I think where the show starts to really. Okay, cool. I, I am cool. a couple of episodes in. I've just I've just not um, made it to the end of the season. Well, I'm not even. I don't even think I'm halfway through. I think I'm like three episodes in of season two. Uh, quite enjoyed the the thing with the crocodile. That was one of the other gags I quite liked uh, at the beginning of season one. Uh, I also got to say my favorite my favorite gag of season one was the bit uh, with the it's <laughs> fantastic yeah because <laughs> it's just one of those oh you're just like oh it's one of Darius's dumb theories that he, f- he believes and just at the end you just see the guy getting in this visible car and then mow down a bunch of people <laughs> <laughs> I guess the only time I actually laughed out loud watching it and I, I rarely laugh out loud when I'm on my own uh, but that that was one thing there was a few. Um gags that got me in the recent season as well like they do have some great writing when they want to um i think a lot of it is like heath stuff like i think darius is probably the funniest character but i think paperboy is my favorite like he has some uh he's such a good actor like i uh, i really i really hope uh, that he has a bright future ahead of him because he's fantastic um well cool yeah love a bit of atlanta i would watch it and uh, I've been enjoying the new season as well. They visit London, which I thought was really entertaining. I liked seeing them talk a little bit about London. They even went to Nando's, uh, which is obviously a cornerstone of English culture. It's very important. Um, or British culture in general, sorry. There's Nando's everywhere. But was it a cheeky Nando's? Yes, <sighs> it's hard to say. It's hard question. to say. Um, <laughs> can, a, can a Nando's ever truly be cheeky? Um, but yeah, that was good fun. Would recommend watching it. And I look forward to hearing a bit more about you getting through season two because I love it and we'll talk a bit more about it then. Uh, now we do have a bit of a game to talk about uh, in our game section. We have a few games, actually. Uh, first up, Citizen Sleeper. Now, this is a game that we've both played. We played it on Games Pass. Uh, you can get it as an RRP for £20, I think, or $20 on Steam if you want to buy it that way. But it's a very small team. It's kind of this... CRPG kind of tabletop inspired game where you're traversing around a space station as a cyborg robot-y guy person who is a grafted consciousness. A consciousness taken from another human being at a particular time, created, cloned and put into a robot body to work for a corporation. And you've been launched off, somehow managed to escape, and uh, you've escaped from your, your shackles and now your corporation is trying to find you again and get you back. But can you make a life for yourself on this space station? And I thought it was fantastic. I thought the writing was a real highlight. It was very reminiscent of Disco Elysium in a lot of ways. And Disco Elysium has a, you know, a huge dev team, whereas in comparison, whereas this is a very small one. Um, I'm sure they're sick of those comparisons. It's just games doesn't have that many games that are, have such good free-flowing writing in the CRPG space. 
but I think that that is a real highlight to me. Um, and also we've had a lot of um, just, I, I quite enjoyed the gameplay, just kind of juggling all these different plates and spinning them. I really enjoyed how on all angles, everyone was just trying to get by and they were trying their best to get by and had a bit of nuance to all the characters. Everyone was just trying to succeed. There was never really a good or a bad choice in any of these choices. You were just trying to find your way to make it on the space station that you found yourself. And it's just a kind of a refuge point for a lot of people trying to escape from a lot of things, even if the thing you're trying to escape from is a much more present and active threat in the world than theirs are. Um, the endings made me cry. I was very emotional about all of it. Uh, and I think it's a, a must play. Um, I was very sad, actually. I, I kind of... Dave played it and loved it, spoiler, uh, but uh, I got my friend Chris to play it and he thought it was just okay and didn't like the story. And I was heartbroken uh, because I, I genuinely, I'm really, really happy for the developers, for all the presences getting. There's not many of them. I'm really happy it's getting such good coverage, such good reactions. Mm. I'm going to say this This is an anti-Chris podcast. <laughs> like Chris, You're banned, Chris. Uh, we've, never, we've never met or spoken, but... You're on my shit list. We're going to have, like, in the podcast notes, a, a picture of Chris, and if you see him listening to the podcast, you have to kick him out. You can't listen to it. Um, not allowed in here. But, yeah, Chris uh, is not a fan of Chris. And, uh, well, Citizen Sleeper was fantastic. I think it is definitely in the runnings for our game of the year here on the podcast. It will definitely come up at the end of the year when we talk about that, so that's really exciting. Uh, but I think some particular highlights to me with some of the individual quests. I really liked the quest with the vending machines. I liked all of the quests that kind of inspected what it was to be human. Uh, but I particularly liked, much like in Disco Elysium, how whenever you took a particular angle, it would try to like question that angle a little bit. I think Disco Elysium would fundamentally lean right into that questioning and would question any path you take. Any, any extreme is one that's wrong. I think in Citizen Sleeper, it tends to find a nice way to segue off whatever you're doing. That it, whatever you're doing, there is maybe an uplifting and encouraging message there, rather than one of nihilism. It has something that you can find a home here, and it doesn't have to be defined by your, where you've come from. You can just find a home here. And whatever choice you make, whoever you choose to come with, that's a positive. Um, I think there are definitely ways in which you can find a negative end in this game, Um but for the most part, I think that there's a lot of nice places that you can end up, and it's very encouraging. It's six hours long. It's well written. It's lovely. It's got great music. What more can I say? You should play it. Uh, what do you think, Dev? Uh, I kind of disagree. Like it's it's a different discussion, but I disagree that um, Disco Elysium is uh, nihilistic. But I do agree that uh, Citizen Sleeper, despite the bleakness of its setting, uh, is very. Maybe not optimistic is the word, but even in the bleakest of situations or character backstories, or even the downright, the closest there is to a bad character, there's something humanistic about it. Despite the fact that your main character is an emulated human, and there's a degree of like body horror and psychological horror of not knowing what parts of your humanity you're missing, uh... It's using that as a frame to interrogate the things that make us human. Uh, one of my favourite little side stories is the one about the the man who makes uh, mushroom food and likes to collect stories from his customers. And it's a way of sort of like keeping the people who are no longer with us alive in story form and 
Uh, like you say, I also really like the vending machine storyline. Uh, even ones that are played a bit more straight, like the one where you're uh, investigating the closest thing the station has to a government uh, with some guy. And even that has questions about how people organize, how you move on from like old fights and battles and beliefs and man i just I, I just love the vibes of the whole station as well like like you say it's about like all these different people trying to get by from a society that's collapsed due to rampant corporations controlling everything and destroying the world and then people who are on the edge of this incredibly fragile and precarious world still trying to make a life still trying to survive and thrive and the different ways people do it it's just oh man uh, yeah like the writing as you say fantastic there was even like it was like disco elysium in that there was never a time i skipped a bit of di- uh, skipped or glazed over a bit of dialogue i absorbed every word of that game uh it's gameplay wise it's not particularly deep um you will probably see everything you can see in the game once playing it but i would say you know granted i didn't pay for it because i got it on games pass but it is well worth that 20 pound price tag like if you've not got access to games pass absolutely spend the money on it you won't be disappointed. Sure, I think just on the subject as well, uh, I don't believe Disco Elysium is nihilist, uh, but I think unlike this game, I believe it is possible to be beyond reproach in Disco Elysium. It is possible to go off the deep end to a point where there is no help for you. It, you know, you can self-combust in a way that, mm. you know, it is. you can yeah. even get to the point where Kim will disregard you and abandon you. Um, you can absolutely give in to that nihilism. Yeah, no, I, I, I guess, I guess if that's what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that Disco Elysium is special in the way that it doesn't necessarily prescribe too much, but I think has questions about wherever you go. Like, I think even if you choose the most compassionate, considerate, most emphatically good, considered moralistic choices, it'll still have questions as to why you picked those. Uh, it'll still have uh, questions for you if you did the right thing. Um, whereas I think it is possible to be kind of good, and to I think I I think more actually more astutely, it is it is impossible to be truly bad. I think as as in sleeper, like whatever choice you make, even if it's in the name of your own self preservation, um, I still think it's a choice that the game will say, well, you know, you had to do this. That you know, like it was, it was the only, it was the only path you could have taken. Like I don't believe it is possible to be a complete mess in Citizen Sleeper, and I think that's nice. Um, I think actually one of my favourite things about Citizen Sleeper, and I liken it back to Yakuza in this perspective, is that in Citizen Sleeper, I think it would have been so easy to have a twist that the person you were cloned from would be of some importance. That lineage is a piece of importance, and I, I always get really annoyed actually in games and media in general that so much importance is placed on blood you know where your genes come from 
when actually their genes have very little impact on the kind of person you are the things you can do in your life like you can sculpt you can be anything you want to be and it's not necessarily something that influences your genes and in fact a lot of the things your genes influences are the things that are you know will keep you back I think like it's very you know like you can heart diseases they just suck for everyone but they're not like uh you know they have nothing to do with the person that you are I would never discount a person because of the kind of genes they've they've ended up with you know they have they have very little bearing on your value as a person um yet so much emphasis is given on lineages uh uh, in media it's really really important that ray is a skywalker it's really really important that so and so is a uh, you know descended from a certain bloodline and i think one thing that i really liked about that in yakuza is that it is never even a question who kiryu's parents actually are you know he has a dad and that's his dad who cared for him, who was there for him, who actually killed, probably killed his parents, but was still there to fill in that parental role for him. And he is far more of an influence in every aspect of Kiryu's life than some person he doesn't remember, but he looks a bit like. And I think in Citizen Sleeper, someone you don't remember, or in this case, you do remember, you remember what it was like to be them. But as you go on, it's nothing more than a fleeting dream. It, um imaginations and memories that don't seem like yours but if you're the one remembering them surely they have to be yours surely they're part of there's this kind of like concept of ownership that a memory cannot be genuine that it cannot be impactful unless it is owned by you but if you could remember it was probably owned by you and that has shaped who you are and you can finally be the person that you want to be completely free of this random imaginary person that people say you should care about that colors the kind of person you are that alienates you from other people you don't need to be anything like them you can be the person you want to be and you can pick the ending you want to and i'm really really glad that it never comes back to bite you that they never came in with a cheap twist that the person whose face is the same as yours turns up that they're somehow impactful or important they never are it's just you're the sleeper and you've made your choices and these are the people you choose to invest in. And I think that is a kind of media that I want to shape and consume and to feed back on because I think it's a much better uh, and more important message to show people than implying that when you're born, that's all of your work done forever. I mean, in before anyone else wants to shout at us, uh, we know that Ray is not yeah, a Skywalker sorry. and is in fact a Palpatine. We we do know that it was probably a joke just just before people, you know. But Dave, our last name Skywalker. Uh, thinking we're idiots. But, <laughs> but to to go on what you're saying, yeah, no, I one of the things I really like about it is you know not just uh, not having like the past or who you were before be the most important thing is that. It also eschews the idea that you are the most important person in the story. Like, you are just one of the many people on this station. And the end of quests, like, the things you work towards for, like, hours of the game will often be as simple as you helped grow some mushrooms or you helped somebody repair a ship or save their struggling business. It doesn't mean much in a grand sense. But to those characters and the way you feel it while you're playing, it means the world. And I think those kind of stories are just so not seen in games. Like, entire quest lines would be like one point of one mission in a typical CRPG. And yeah, I think along with Disco Elysium, uh, that this game scratches that itch of telling more human stories. 
And that's what we want. Human stories told by human people. That's what we want. Games made by humans is what we're after. And this is one of those. It feels like I, uh, it has a lot to say and it says it, but it never judges you for thinking what you want to think about this game. And that's what I like. I think it's a compassionate game. That's what I read into it anyway. I, I like this game. So yeah, Citizen Sleeper, great game. It is on the All Right Pop Podcast Game of the Year. Uh, we'll be talking about this as we go. But if you're listening to this and you haven't played it, I would like you to. Be like Dave, don't be like Chris. Um, and we'll be moving on to another game set in space where your choices also matter. It's Mass Effect. Question mark. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I picked up the Mass Effect Legendary Edition because it was on sale and... You know, when these games came out, they were a big part of my life because I just, well, I'm a sci-fi nerd and they were pretty influential at the time. Uh, I've only, I'm most of the way through Mass Effect now and man, it's like my memories of it were so different. Like I remember really struggling with the gameplay in this and going back to, I'm playing on the hardest difficulty and it's actually kind of a breeze. You just have to have the right gear. Um, but I'm also kind of like struck by how much filler there was in the game. But at the same time, filler, I don't mind playing. Like, I love exploring the little planets and the little tank Mako thing. It is... They've, they, they've tweaked the physics. I don't think it's as hard to control as it used to be. Um, but... It's something that doesn't really appear in the next two games and I think is sadder for it. Because there's just a few times, like, you're on a planet that is sort of like... I think it's like a sort of snowy snowy planet. But because, like, the sun is a sort of shade of pink, everything has that sort of, like, one a different hue of pink. And it's just... It made it look alien in a way that alien planets often don't look in video games. And I was like, damn, this, like, the later games needed more settings that looked like this. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot that didn't get sort of, like, expanded upon that was in the first Mass Effect that I think really should have. Um, yeah, the, st- the story as well is... Uh, I like. I've been enjoying that as well. Um... I will always remember Mass Effect for its characters. Um, for me, in particular, Garrus. Is it Garrick? Garrus. Mister. Yeah, Garrus. They, yeah, he was a. Oh, they were a particular highlight for me. Um, I also remember when the first time I played it, uh, I got to the point where spoilers. Uh, Rex gets shot or dies. That doesn't have to happen. Um, but it can happen, and he did absolutely he die for, died for did me he die for because you? I didn't love him enough. And um, I restarted the entire Aww. game and played up until that point, so he didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> I respect that because uh, because I remember it. I was not, hadn't been so heartbroken by a alleged character death since the time when I thought my pig dad in Beyond Good and Evil had died. Um, so. They, they they had a very similar place in my heart, Pig Dad and Rex, and I replayed the entire game to try and save Rex. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a little surprised because uh, maybe, maybe he gets more to do in the later parts of the story, but as much as I love Garrus, particularly in Mass Effect 2 and 3, 
he doesn't really seem to have much to do in Mass Effect 1. He's like quite important for like the very start of the game, but even when I talk to him on the ship, he's he's never got anything new to say like a lot of the other characters do. Um which is which is a bit of a shame, like but also kind of interesting that a character that is so beloved by the fandom kind of started out bland's not the word, but not a lot to attach to like this this character at least this iteration of the character isn't somebody i imagine is my best pal um but by mass effect 3 he definitely will be or perhaps something more because this time i'm playing Ooh. as femship so the only choice you know um definitely probably will jump garris's bones the first chance i get but I think um, I think it could be the case of well, uh, him being underexposed in the first game. He's a fan favorite, and then he comes back and he's played, and you know, like they're like, oh, everyone always, you know, loved him. Let's get him back in two and three and give him a bit more to do. Um, but I, I definitely really liked him. I think he was one of my favorite characters from there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I well, yeah, he's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, just, just I was just a little surprised that he like my memory of his character was like, oh. Maybe I'm more remembering stuff from Mass Effect 2. Um, and just sort of blended it all together. Which is fine, because, you know, a character can have arcs. Um, I think I was just also a bit surprised. Like, I really hated Ashley when I first played the game years back. Because she's, like, a space racist. Um, but I also, when playing at this time, was a lot more... Because sim- I've decided to keep her around, like... Initially, when you're chosen to kill Ashley or Caden, I was like, immediately Ashley. She can die. I don't care. But I've decided to keep her around, see what she's like in the later Mass Effects. So I'm a bit more sympathetic to her this time around. I'm trying to be a bit more of a diplomatic shepherd this time. Because I, I think previously when I played, when she started like acting up with her space racism, I just shut her down. And that like ends the conversation. Whereas if you're a bit more diplomatic, you get more of her backstory and I wouldn't say she's sympathetic, but she's a bit more interesting, at least. Um, so we'll see what keeping her around is like as it goes on. Caden's uh, still boring, though. He's, he's uninteresting throughout. Do you think you're going to play through this one and then go on to the other Mass Effects to try and play them as a trilogy? Or do you think it's kind of just one and done, This uh, the Mass Effect one? Well, I mean, I bought all three, so yeah, I'm definitely going to play the others. Um, maybe not right away. I'll probably take a break and play something else between them. But yeah, I'll, I'll definitely go back to Mass Effect 2 and 3 after this and see how I feel about the series as a whole. Because I feel like um, the plot takes a turn in the third game. Like The themes that they've been building up in the first two games suddenly gets changed and... I mean, if you know anything about the behind-the-scenes stuff, there was a lot of, like, change in leadership between Mass Effect 2 and 3. So, I wonder how I'm going to feel about that. I'm not I'm not just talking about the ending that everyone hated at the time. I'm talking just, like, more, like, the stuff... Just, like, the change of the type of stories it tells. Because, like, in the first two games, it has, like, a theme of, like... How do I explain it? Like, you, you know the the environmental thing about when trees grow tall when they grow so tall that they block out the light and nothing underneath Mm. them can grow 
the, that's what they're trying to like tell with the stories in Mass Effect. You're constantly given the choice between what's more important, maintaining the integrity of species who have been around for a long time and their dominance has been assured, or do you give the chance for new or species who have previously not been allowed to grow to grow? And in my games, I always chose, you know, the little guy, give them a chance. And I believe the original ending for the series was supposed to be you were actually given the choice of, like, look, that's what the Reapers are supposed to do. They're supposed to give the chance for new species to grow. Otherwise, the galaxy would become stagnant, static, unchanging. And I think that's, like, so much more, would have been so much more interesting ending choice than the one they got. Because you'd be forced to reckon with the fact that, at least in my case, I had always chosen the little guy. But then on a galactic scale, would I still make the same decision? And yeah, so I'm wondering how I'm going to feel about all that going through, or if maybe, you know, 10 years on, I'm not as attached to the story as I'd previously seen it. I'm seeing it a bit more in a detached way. Do you think you will continue the party onto Andromeda? I have never played Andromeda. I kind of gave it a miss because people were quite cold on it when it came out. Not because like the controversy with the graphics and stuff. I didn't care about that. Um, I think like people were just like, "Oh, it's just doing a lot of what Mass Effect did again." With like, there's another ancient precursor species, and there's a mystery about them. It's like, oh, they're doing Mass Effect again. But at the same time, I've also since seen some people be a lot kinder towards it and say that they actually kind of enjoyed it it's fun even if it isn't doing anything particularly interesting so yeah i actually might jump onto andromeda after i finish the trilogy just to it's kind of exciting. It a bit. and uh, they're making a new mass effect as well right so it should be exciting you should be mm-hmm. should be all ready to go by the time you finish this i'd like to hear what you think about andromeda like as you said it's quite reviled on the internet but i've always get the impression it's nowhere near as bad as people say it is I think very few things actually are, if I'm honest. Uh, but I, uh, I always get the impression that it's not quite as bad as people say. So I would be interested to hear you uh, hear what you have to say about it. Um, but yeah, that's kind of cool. Um, should we talk a little bit about these last three games? And I think they're all kind of my games. Uh, and then that's kind of it for the podcast, I think. Uh, unless we have any more games to talk about. So I'm going to whiz through these two. Um, Umarangi Generations is a photography game where you walk around environments, you take pictures of things that it specifically tells you to. Uh, in a lot of cases, this ends up kind of a bit like a Where's Wally, uh, which for our American fans is Where's Waldo, uh, who has a cooler name in the United Kingdom. Um, <laughs> who uh, You're walking around trying to find these little bits and pieces uh, in this time limit, uh, while also kind of getting well-composed, cool pieces of photos. If you like photography, this will be the kind of game for you. It's kind of like an indie kind of cool pokemon snap it's on games pass i'd recommend giving it a go it was quite fun i wasn't engrossed by it i don't think it's like a super special game but i think that it's really fun and if you like photography it will be amplified for you and i do kind of like photography so i think that was quite fun i also played through bloodstained curse of the moon because i want to actually play through the rest of the bloodstained games they're kind of 2d castlevania style games uh, with the conceit being that you have, in this first one, for sh- for the Shua, you have multiple characters in your party, uh, and you can swap between them to use their different abilities. When one of them dies, you restart the character, the level, but with one character fewer. 
so you have less abilities to use less things to do but now but you still get another go when you die and you have to kind of go back and complete the level and you have until your party gets down to zero to keep retrying the level at which point you can't try it anymore I'm a real sucker for these kind of retro 2D platformers. Uh, it's not like a Metroidvania style game. It's kind of a linear left to right platformer. Uh, but uh, it's the music is amazing. The gameplay is really tight. It looks really cool. I had a great time playing this and I will, can't wait to play more. Uh, I'll be honest with you, the thing I've been playing the most is Teamfight Tactics, the League of Legends auto chess game. It has been consuming my life. I've been playing way too much of it. I need to stop doing that and play some other games. Uh, but that has definitely been eating into the time I have to play these other games. Yes, Sorry, so chess? it is a little bit like... Do you know Terror Defenses? Imagine a Terror Defense, mm -hmm. except... Uh, you can the towers aren't towers they're people um and you draft them okay yeah I, that was a really bad uh so essentially what happens is you uh you start the game and you have like a bunch of cards you can pick from like drafting in a card game and you can say okay i pick the warrior card and when you pick that you can place it onto like a grid like a real-time strategy game and monsters come towards you and they fight the monsters and then after you finish those, you fight like the combinations of other players. And the the cards keep going around the table like a drafting game. And it's what's known as an auto-battler. So it's like a card game, except the cards you play fight each other, other players' cards automatically. And it's all about like the synergies you draft and the types of things you go into, which was an awful, awful explanation. But I hope I've started to convey a little bit of what it is. Um, weird card game... A real-time strategy game that happens automatically um they were kind of a craze a few years back with dota auto chess uh, and there was a bunch of spin-offs and league of legends have their own called team fight tactics which is really popular available on mobile available on desktop uh, and uh it has consumed me a little bit because they've started to add some of the other mechanics from card games uh, like they've got a new one like from slay the spire where you can pick like big modifiers so, for example, now you can pick from three modifiers. If you pick one, then uh, now all of your units at the front do more damage. If you pick two, these specific kinds of units are better. If you pick three, now when you re-roll to get more cards, uh, that you, you can't level up anymore, but you can re-roll for free. Things like that. Lots of little ways to make every game feel unique. Uh, and I think that's the best part of it, is every game feels really fresh. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why it sucked me in. But yeah. We'll probably add that to the show notes. We talked a little bit about that. The final game that I've played the most is Devil May Cry 5. I have never played a Devil May Cry game before, so it makes it very interesting that I chose to start at 5. But I immediately loved it. I want to play more of these games. They are so corny, they are so cheesy, uh, everything about them is so silly and over the top, and that's exactly what I want. The combat, the free-flowing action combat's amazing, the facial uh, animations are great. Uh, I really enjoyed just how campy and corny all the voice acting was very reminiscent of Metal Gear uh, Rising Revengeance, which is a game that's really popular at the minute. Uh, but I think Devil May Cry 5 was fantastic. Uh, I particularly enjoyed playing as V, which I think is everyone's least favorite choice. But he's kind of like a really withered, uh, weak person in terms of body. But he has these really strong demon friends to fight for him. And they do all the fighting around him as he commands them. And he kind of has to avoid damage while reading poetry, um, which is amazing. Um, 
Yeah, he, he, he reads that. really bad poetry as he walks around to get more. And as he does so, his kind of raven, his leopard, and a huge hulking behemoth known as the Nightmare. I think it's Nightmare. Oh, it might not be Nightmare. Oh, well, it's got a name. It's big. And it attacks people. And that's really cool. Uh, other characters include Nero, who has a collection of uh, mechanical arms that he has to keep finding on the battlefield, which all have different abilities. He's a bit easier to play, didn't enjoy playing as him as much. And finally, Dante from the Devil May Cry series, who had about 15 weapons that you could cycle between, including rocket launchers, shotguns, a cowboy hat, slash fedora. Um, Wait, the, the, the cowboy hat slash fedora is a weapon? In fact, I, sh- I, shouldn't, yes. I shouldn't say like I'm surprised. Like I've played a few of these games. They, and he they, wears they it and dances like Michael weapons. Jackson. Um and uh there's also <laughs> nunchucks made from a dead dog you fight with an actual motorcycle it's two halves of a motorcycle that you can ride around and smash people with uh game is incredible why 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 wouldn't you play this game you should play this game it's brilliant and best of all it has a previs mode so if you haven't seen this i'd recommend doing so in the animation studio like before they kind of make the final cutscenes for pose and animation reference they act out the scenes the developers will dressed as the characters to try and get an idea of how it should be and you have the developers dressed up like a high school production of devil may cry 5 acting out all of these things instead of the actual cutscenes. it is incredible um I can't recommend it enough. It's so brilliant. So yeah, I love Devil May Cry 5. I now want to go back and play more Devil May Cry's. It is a cheesy wedge of fun that lasted me about 10 hours and it never really stopped. It never really slowed down, but I had a great time and I'd really recommend it. So, oh, and it has like intense butt rock um, of the highest caliber, like sonic music, which I absolutely adored and I've been listening to all week. So brilliant. Really, really enjoyed that. The music has always been fantastic. Yeah, super good. So, yeah, I really enjoyed my entrance to the Devil May Cry series, and I would recommend it to anyone. Um, and that's about it. Uh, anything else to add, Dave? I don't know. Other than that, you've made me actually think I want to check out. You should. It's so good. Five. I would really recommend it. I haven't checked in with the series since well, I mean, it's not even that many editions ago, but four. But I didn't even, I didn't even like complete four or anything. I just played a bit of it. Um, three was the last one I played from start to finish. Yeah, the game's great, and um, I'd recommend anyone check it out. Like, it's just, 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 just big dumb fun. Like, you know, why wouldn't you want that? Um, so yeah, it's great. Do, are you even aware of the other Devil May Cry games? I watched a summary series on what happened in them because at the start of Devil May Cry 5 they have like a little uh, you can watch it to get caught up on all the lore of the previous Devil May Cry so you know what's going on so I did that, was incredibly confused started up the game there was a lot of references I didn't get but uh, I still had a good time I don't think you need to know anything about Devil oh, May no, Cry you to don't. start Devil May Cry the, 5 The only reason yeah. I bring it up is because um, one of the things that for me was I actually did not like the turn towards the absurd originally um, because the first two games are actually fairly straight, play it straight. They're, they're it's not it's not humorous. It's more of a well, I mean, they began life as a, a Resident Evil four when uh, they were developing that and decided actually let's make this its own game. And then Devil May Cry was born out of that. So the first two games don't have like jokes, a witty dante or anything like, and those were the ones I played first. 
So when Devil May Cry 3 comes around and then it's suddenly Dante's this wise cracking jackass who surfs on missiles and I was like, no, no fun allowed. And yeah, I didn't I didn't really like that change and it wasn't really until Devil May Cry 4 came out and I was like, okay, I'm I'm, I'm starting to come around. I'm starting to enjoy the absurdity of it all. Like which I think I would have done earlier, considering one of the better things about Resident Evil is just how camp it is. Yeah, they go they go whole hog in it in this game, um, which is kind of sad actually. I don't want to play it when it wasn't silly now, but maybe I'd still enjoy it. Uh, I, 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 I just I just thought was like yeah. wondered if you knew about it, thought it might be interesting to mention. Mm. Um, you know, like I wouldn't say they're necessarily worth going back to play. Like in fact, even among fans of the game, people hate the second one. So uh, even if you did go back, I wouldn't recommend necessarily playing the second one. Uh, it's just like, that's just, I just thought it was like an interesting bit of history that it, it wasn't always this absurd, ridiculous, operatic thing. Well, a fun fact about Devil May Cry 2 is that they still don't know who directed it, right? Because in order, because they knew it was bad and it wasn't going out so well, that they actually kept themselves anonymous to protect themselves. So the director is actually down as being completely anonymous. Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely hilarious. We still don't know who directed that game. <laughs> do we have any theories? Like, um, did, I don't. Did, I don't did, think. I think it's just did not David known, yeah. Cage take a brief sojourn to Japan to develop a Devil May Cry game? I don't know. <laughs> I wondered who's, why. Who's to say? Who's to say? But let's maybe blame him anyway. I wondered why Dante suddenly got to a balcony and did Martin Luther King's speech before repeatedly saying it wasn't about race before killing demons. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and that's a good place to end it. Uh, as always, uh, we oppose David Cage in all forms and will reject him. Um, do you have anything else to add, Dave? Uh, death to David Cage? Oh no, we're probably not allowed to say that. That probably sounds like a threat. Um... Uh, David Cage... At some point, you'll die, and it won't be our fault. Yeah, like yeah, yeah that. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's not a threat, but you will die. Um, Everybody dies, we, David. You, especially you. <laughs> <laughs> and we just hope it's not a good death. Cool. That's actually kind of harsh. Um, right, we'll edit there. <laughs> Maybe we'll cut that bit out. <laughs> not too rough. <laughs> okay, great place to end it. Okay, let's uh, let's hang up. Uh, good night and goodbye, everyone. Hope you have a great week. Uh, a great two weeks, and we'll see you in a couple. Oh, actually, I forgot to say, have you ended it yet, Dave? Are you still going? Sorry? Are you still going? Am I still going? Yeah, yeah, are you still recording? Yeah, I'm still recording. Perfect, great, great, okay. I forgot to say, if you want to email us, everyone, really professional outro for everyone, I hope we keep this in, it's kind of incredible. Uh, <laughs> if you'd like to email us, you can email us at allrightpalpodcast at gmail.com. What's that, Dave? At allrightpalpodcast at gmail.com. And that's where you can send us death threats for David Cage. Um, thanks, everyone, and uh, have a beautiful fortnight, and we'll catch you. Bye-bye.